Hello, hello, everyone. I'm Sinead Willihan coming at you from Star Family Wisdom, and I'm bringing you today a book talk. Uh, Jenna and I are both huge nerds. We love being huge nerds. We love learning. We love exploring and keeping our minds open about what we're learning and what we're exploring. So um, one of the people that's helping us do that is the wonderful Paul Wallace. Now, Jenna has done a previous book talk on Paul's work, and this is sort of a part, a part two to the book that she was speaking about, which was Paul's second book. This is his third, The Scars of Eden. You can see how much of a nerd I am. There's like uh, all kinds of reflective pieces of paper marking all the pages that I loved. Uh, the far too many of them, actually, I kind of fell off with it. This book is really something else. Paul's work is really something else. If you don't know about Paul Wallace, you need to know about Paul Wallace. He is writing these wonderful books that are just absolutely packed full of very valuable information that has been compiled after many, many, many years of Paul's own personal exploration and his academic exploration and being a, a, a pastor and a religious man. Um, within the church and a leader within the church in Australia where he lives, he is also exploring the religious and faith-based side of things. And so he's compiling all of these aspects into his books, and they're just incredibly well-researched, incredibly um, thoroughly um, done, and just beautiful to read. Paul has a wonderful sense of humor. He has a beautiful way of drawing all this information together and um, making it very easily understandable. While he uses beautiful language that is very accurate, very clean, clear, you know, precise language, which I really appreciate. Um, he also makes it very accessible to anybody who is not familiar with the church, is not familiar with Christian religion, is not familiar with maybe worldwide narratives and myths, which he involves also in his writing. He makes that all very clear, very accessible to us. So without further ado, uh, Paul has been investigating an ongoing theme, which is what does the Bible really tell us about our human origins and what we are doing here on earth? That's really what is driving him overall. And for this book in particular, he expands on the knowledge that he gathered previously. And the question that he's, he's asking with this book is, has humanity confuse the idea of God with memories of ET contact. I'm reading that directly from the cover of the book. So the theme is, have we confused God or gods, you know, depending on what culture, what religion we're in, have we confused that with ET contact, with extraterrestrial involvement in humanity's growth on Earth and also the growth of the planet? And so that is, first of all, a fascinating question. I love that question. And he starts off with talking about Plato. Now, Plato is someone that I personally studied when I was in uh, university. And I remember what I learned about Plato because of, or from his work, because it was so striking to me. It just rang a bell of truth for me. And of course, that is almost silly to say, because Plato is one of the founding fathers of our Western and in some ways Eastern thought um, and philosophies and approach to life and science and, you know, the universe, many things. He's been taken very seriously uh, for a very, very, very long time. And a lot of his thoughts and ideas hold up our cultures and our societies. What Paul touches on that I love, actually more than touches on, he goes into in detail, is that Plato um, had written a couple of pieces, a couple of works that spoke about extraterrestrials as if they were real, as if they were part of human history. And interestingly, even though Plato was held in very high regard by the people of his time, including church fathers, 
this narrative was only held, this narrative about ETs that he wrote, was only held to be serious content for a certain amount of time. And then when the church started eroding or erasing aspects of the Bible that originally talked about extraterrestrials, Plato's work was also dismissed. And so it's interesting that the church seemed to have picked and chosen, you know, what of Plato's work they deem to be relevant and what isn't. And so uh, Paul questions that, which I really, really love. So he's talking about how 400 years before Jesus was around, Plato was here. He was on Earth and he was writing about these topics. And he said in his work that extraterrestrials modified us and that they, he called them children of God. He called these beings, which he didn't phrase necessarily as extraterrestrials. That's a much more modern word. But he basically, he called them beings from space and called them children of God. And he also said that they gave us a higher capacity for consciousness, for intelligence, that they were advanced company in the universe for us, and that there is other advanced com company, so-called, in the universe that is available to us. Plato also said that Earth was a globe. This is when nobody knew anything more much about this, you know, what shape the world was, its position in space, its relationships to the planets. It was really guesswork for them at the time. But Plato said Earth is a globe floating in space, getting blasted by cosmic movement every once in a while that in cycles causes extinction level, level events. That's very interesting because in Paul's research in the book, he talks about how that extinction extinction narrative, um, meaning that there have been very catastrophic events on Earth before that have wiped out previous civilizations. Therefore, we are not the first civilization on Earth, contrary to what we have been taught and what we think. We are not the first civilization on Earth. And so worldwide cultures and religions and you know many schools of thought around the world, myth, myths, so-called narratives, indigenous narratives, have talked about this in various ways, these catastrophic events, and that they occur in cycles, and that after they occur, a new civilization arises. So Plato refers to that. And he also said that we're not the first humans and the first human uh, civilization on Earth, that Christians endorsed him at the time. They supported his thought. They supported his ideas. And the church fathers were happy to have those topics on the table. I mean, these were things that were being discussed at the time among the religious leaders openly as uh, part of what they were discovering in their uh, development of their faith, their development of religion, and their development of their understanding of themselves as humans and of our purpose on Earth, the planet itself. So at this time, before Christ, 400 years before, Plato was being taken very seriously as someone who was not just a scientist, a brilliant mind, but also something of a visionary, not just a philosopher, but also a visionary. Now, what's interesting is that um, those topics ended up, again, being completely dismissed by the church. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more, um, along with other narratives that didn't seem to fit into the way that the Bible was being edited. There was a great deal of editing that went on, especially in the 6th century. Um, Paul references that. So he is bringing these topics back, Paul is, by, you know, by doing this in-depth research and finding this evidence from such brilliant fundamental thinkers as Plato and saying, hang on a second, these were people that were highly respected, incredibly intelligent, you know, world leaders, major, major influences on their time. 
Why is it that only some of what they said was relevant and the rest suddenly isn't and that the church chooses what isn't and what is that, you know, that's worth investigating. So he's been really pouring through that. And so he also talks about how did we forget there's this language in this community now around, um, you know, the people who are investigating our human origins, our true human origins here on Earth, our extraterrestrial connections, our extraterrestrial makeup. You know, we are partially of space, or of outer space ourselves, which we are not used to thinking of at all. We don't think of ourselves as cosmic beings. We think of ourselves as earthly beings because that's what we're taught that we are. But of course, the picture is much bigger. And so Paul talks about, well, how do we forget this knowledge of who we really are, what our origins really are? And so I'm going to read you a little list that he includes on uh, page six of the book. It's very short, but it really um, it's such a beautiful summary of what has happened over time that has caused the erosion of this knowledge. So first of all, he says that in the Ten Commandments, it was commanded out of Judaism. This knowledge, this information was commanded out of Judaism. In the 6th century BCE, it was edited out of the Hebrew scriptures. And this is also a time when Judaism had become monotheistic. So they were starting to choose one God instead of the plural of Elohim, which Paul discovered to be plural. It is not singular, that word. So the word Elohim, which originally appeared in the in the first edition of the Bible, describing these high beings who came and spent time with humans and on planet Earth, basically, um, that they were uh, the powerful ones, plural. That is what Paul discovered. And that is what started him really on this whole uh, journey of delving further into the Bible, into religious texts, to look at the language really closely, including the tenses, to see what's really going on. And a whole other story emerges. So first of all, uh, Judaism was starting to narrow their focus from plural gods, plural, you know, Elohim, to one, to the monotheistic view. That was in the sixth century. And then in the first century and second century CE, it was excommunicated. This knowledge was excommunicated out of the early church. It was illegalized from the Roman Empire by Emperor Theodosius in 381 CE and buried in the caves of the Nag Hammadi Desert to protect it from obliteration. In the 15th century, it was confiscated and burned out of the libraries of Central and South America by the Spanish and Portuguese conquistadors. And in the 16th century, its proponents were burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, that included Giordano Bruno, who was a very important person in our history. I'm going to mention him early, uh, a little bit later. And in more recent times, President Truman in the U.S. suppressed it when he signed the National Security Act of 1947. And that policy of suppression has continued unabated right up until last year when a number of cats got let out of the bag by the U.S. Department of Defense. So that is a summary of how this knowledge has been edited out of our common knowledge, out of our uh, our texts, you know, the fundamental texts that have created how we think essentially as a collective society and culture. So we have not been permitted to have this knowledge as part of that development. And Paul is questioning why and saying that that doesn't feel right. So what is driving Paul to do this? I mean, he, is, he has been a leader in um, the Australian church for a very long time, and he has had his own unusual experiences, which have been hard enough for him to make sense of. 
And a lot of people who are in his position as religious leaders, let's say, and as experiencers, they keep quiet because there's been so much fear, so much stigma, and so much shame, maybe perhaps especially in the religious community around these topics. So what drives Paul? So on page seven, Paul says, I really love this a lot. Surely we only impoverish our understanding of the universe if we embarrass into silence anybody with an anomalous experience to share. So he's saying, Paul is saying that if we don't at least listen to these people and listen to these experiences in others and in ourselves, we are limiting our ability to understand fully the universe. Therefore, we are limiting our ability to understand fully ourselves, our purpose in being alive. And I think that that is really, really, really true. You know, why can't we question? Why can't we adventure? Why can't we explore? And why are we shamed, ridiculed, stigmatized if we try to delve into topics that have been around for literally thousands and thousands of years? It makes no sense. So Paul is very driven, very passionate about following this calling that he has, and it really comes across in the book, which is partially what makes it so such a beautiful read. So he's bringing these topics back into our discussions um, on a mainstream level. Paul's books have done really well, and he's getting a lot of wonderful attention because his work is so good and because it resonates with so many people who feel like there's truth in this, right? So where do we go from here? Well, he starts talking about the abduction and hybridization phenomena that is around the world. It is worldwide. And he shares a wonderful experience when he's talking to his own family, his parents-in-law, his, wife, uh, his wife's mother and father. And they are originally from um, areas of uh, Africa. And so they say to him, hang on a second, Paul, we already know this narrative, this abduction hybridization narrative. And he was shocked. He had no idea that they already knew about this. So they explained to him that in their own family history, this narrative has been passed on. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It must, because there are so many cultures around the world that have this narrative inherent within them and have passed it on over thousands, hundreds of years. So Paul's own family did this, and they said to him, yes, we know about this. There's a lineage um, in our culture that is around this myth, so-called, of uh, beings called the Mamiwata. And these are people who are extraordinarily beautiful, highly intelligent, and are hybrids, and also have come to... Um, to Earth for the purpose of working with human beings, human DNA, to create hybrids. Now, this is the whole topic that is arising uh, more and more and more now than it ever has. It's a topic of a great amount of interest. And Paul brings it right into this discussion of uh, dissecting the Bible and religious texts. It doesn't seem like it would belong, but to Paul, it does belong because the Bible says, the original text said that we are hybrids, that we have been seeded by the extraterrestrials. The planet here was seeded, meaning that we were planted, sort of, as beings on this earth, and that um, school, earth is kind of a school or a project, and that these beings are observing us going through this life. So Paul is bringing in a lot of evidence and examples of that in this wonderful book. He goes all around the world and references all kinds of connections and parallels, especially to indigenous narratives and to narratives that have um, 
that are very similar, that are very parallel, that are on opposite sides of the world, very far away from each other. So back at the time that these narratives would have would have taken root, um, probably from the ETs coming down and giving them directly to us, that would make sense. Those countries would have had no way of interacting with each other. We're talking thousands of years ago. There's no way that they would have been able to interact with each other and say, you know, share their stories and and make them into similar stories. That simply could not have happened because travel did not exist back then like it does now. So it's interesting that many stories around the world are very, very similar, very similar, actually. And I'm going to mention that um, in a little while. So... Paul is talking about his earliest awareness um, of ancient hybridization narratives, that it comes from Genesis, it comes from the Bible. And so Paul is saying that in Genesis 6, the Benai Elohim, which means um, the ones that are like the powerful ones. So the Elohim are the powerful ones, plural, and the Benai Elohim are the ones who are like the powerful ones and that they came to earth to take females, and that in the process of breeding essentially with female humans, they created the Nephilim, the race of giants. Now that is a wonderful topic also, that also occurs all the way around the world. There are giant narratives, or narratives of giants having lived in various countries, including the country of my origin, Ireland, um, and that narrative's those narratives have been largely held in the modern day to be myths, to be made up stories. But Paul's like, hmm, hang on a second, let's look at this more closely, because how is it that the exact same narratives would have occurred in places where people would not have been able to share those stories with each other? It makes no sense. So he's talking about that. He also goes back to the book of Enoch. And in the book of Enoch, part of the Bible, there are these beings that were called the Watchers, who broke the rules, they basically broke the ethics between um, the realm of the humans and the realm of the star people, the extraterrestrials, uh, the higher beings, the Elohim, that they broke those ethics for the purposes of hybridization. They basically came down and mated with humans when they weren't supposed to. So it's, list, it's mentioned in Genesis 6 in the Bible. It's mentioned in Book of Enoch. Um, also in Greece, there are many, many tales of hybridization births, uh, hybrid births happening between the gods, the Greek gods and humans. That birthed a race that were called the Titans. You might have heard about the Titans because we uh, Greek mythology is pretty common in the Western world. I remember learning about it when I was a kid in elementary school and being fascinated with that idea. And so he's talking about how there are these superior beings, right, that are up there somewhere and that they've made Project Earth and that they come down and visit it for various reasons. But one of those reasons is creating hybrid races. And he also talks about how that comes up in Indian narratives, Norse narratives, Celtic narratives, including the giants, and Egyptian and Native, Native American narratives also very similar, similar parallels, very similar parallels. And um, Paul loves that. He's so good at drawing together the connections between all of these seemingly very different cultures, very different philosophies, very different faiths. And showing that our origins are very similar, even though we were not able to share those origins orally or otherwise with each other back then. So very interesting stuff. And that the themes, by the way, that he uncovers 
um, within these hybrid narratives are also incredibly similar. Uh, I keep mentioning that, sorry, but I'm just so amazed by the parallels and the similarities that he finds. It, it is just, his work is unreal. It's so detailed, so thorough. He has traveled personally all over the world to gather these narratives himself from people that he's met with, which I really love as well, because it just adds um, you know, integrity, even more integrity to what we are reading in the book, the first-hand, sto the first-hand stories and accounts um, that Paul is sharing with us. So anyway, the themes that he finds, first of all, lots of talk of underwater bases and underwater civilizations. And we know currently that UFOs, which we now know are real, are often seen plunging into the water or coming out of the water, large bodies of water. Could be a lake, could be an ocean. The U.S. Navy has videoed this. It's um, in public on YouTube. You can find the video of the uh, one particular UFO diving into the water and disappearing. And also that they go in without a splash, which is pretty cool. How do they manage to do that? So apparently there are underwater bases. There are, uh, and that the beings, the high beings have healing abilities, that they are not actually trying to harm us. They're trying to help us in our development might not always feel helpful, but, um, you know, that they are trying to heal us. And so often when people are abducted or taken away to visit with these beings or go up into space, be taken to their planet, whatever it is that occurs, when they return to Earth, they are in better shape than they were when they left. They're healthier. They are more vital. They have more life force energy. This is also a very common theme that humans are returned in better shape physically than they were when they left. Um and that the humans are unharmed, but still used for hybridization and then return to the earth, which can be, which can be a really jarring experience for the human. That's still a theme that we're exploring these days uh, with abduction narratives and so on. But the hybridization um, pattern over so many thousands of years, that narrative that has come up in so many texts around the world, it may give us an answer as to the, the abduction phenomenon. And in fact, I feel like it does. Many, many current leaders feel like it does. It does not make the abduction experience necessarily any less traumatic for the human, but hopefully the more knowledge and understanding we have about what is going on, the less fear we will have and the easier time we will have to adjust to what is going on once we get that information. It can be very reassuring and comforting. So he also talks about how a lot of the beings, a lot of the um, Elohim-type beings, the high beings that come down, are tall, pale, and very, very beautiful. They are called Nordics in some circles by uh, experiencers here on Earth, or they're called the tall whites. There are different names for them, but they certainly seem to have popped up throughout history around the world. And that's very interesting for, again, thousands of years. So in any case, he go he continues on. He talks about how in Greece, you know, again, they had the Titans, the hybrid race that was created between the gods and humans became the Titans. And also in Greece, there was a king named Minos. Now, I love this part. There's a king named Minos who existed. He was a real person back in Greece. And this was at the time of advanced Minoan culture, which was occurring in Greece. Now, Minos's mother, says Paul, was seduced by Zeus. And guess what her name was? Europa. So Minoans are hybrids. They were real people living on Earth. King Minos was a hybrid because his mother, Europa, was seduced by Zeus. And not only that, Europe was named after Europa. 
So here we have a continent named after an abductee, and we have a hybrid race of humans that we know existed, in fact, on Earth in Greece. So it's just really, he, he just, this book is absolutely packed full of really juicy nuggets of info. And of course, he gives a lot more research and detail to support these things that I'm giving you right now. I'm not going to read you the whole book. That would be so boring. Um, but I want to give you some juicy tidbits to get you into how amazing this book is. So for example, um, he hops into the, in the, into the present time and he talks about a really famous obvious landing. Um, this is one of the contact stories that occurred that has multiple hundreds even of witnesses. And this is a story that is, um, he's mentioning it as an example of something that happened in clear view of hundreds of people was documented, people were interviewed, it was investigated thoroughly, um, you know, just can't miss it, like such a spectacular event. And then the story just disappears. And so there's a lot of these, you know, a lot of these stories that have happened in the modern day around the world, and yet we never hear about them. They seem to just disappear. Why is that? So Paul is using this example, which is called the Westall Incident. It occurred in Melbourne, Australia, and there were over 200 witnesses. It was a really huge deal. It's probably the biggest sighting in Australian history. And um, this story just disappeared. So Paul uses it as an example of, to illustrate why indigenous narratives in our world are so incredibly valuable. Because he's saying that, this is a quote, it is in these official, unofficial stories in our folk memory. At Star Family Wisdom, we're experiencers of ET contact. That's right, we're in communication with ET beings we know as our star family. We've had lives in advanced civilizations, and we're here to be a bridge between the galactic community and you. And the galactic community can't wait to meet you. That's why we created the Meet the Star Races course. In this course, I teach you about the star races who are in contact with Earth right now. How do I know who the star races are? Well, my star family guided me to the information they want you to have. Just like all of the other information here at Star Family Wisdom, we bring you the wisdom and guidance that our ET friends want you to know. You'll learn about our true ancient history, why the ETs have been here on Earth, and what we can learn from our ET brothers and sisters. The star races are part of our history, and they're part of our future. Join the galactic community today with our Meet the Star Races course and use the code GALACTIC at checkout to get 50% off. It is in these unofficial stories in our folk memory that our cultures carry the memory of moments and events unacknowledged by our political authorities. And I really love that because it is so true that our folk memory and our way of communicating with each other through verbal um, tradition, in a sense, is what allows us to inherit a lot of information from our forebears, from our ancestors, that cannot be controlled by political um, leaders, you know, people who are in political power. And we need to be paying attention to that. And of course, indigenous narratives are one of the most glaring, obvi obvious examples of that. 
um, we honor indigenous narratives so much more now that we finally caught up to the fact that they know what's going on. They understand that earth is alive. There are many spirits on the earth that um, are trying to communicate with us and help us and that star beings are real. Indigenous people around the world have been saying this for generations. So that's one example that Paul references also. But he re he really talks about how important it is for us to value that folk memory, that instinctive memory that we have, that we know more than what we've been told. So another example he gives is of uh, this is this is sort of alluding to the importance of indigenous narrative or folk narrative um, and why it's so important to pay attention to these stories, even if we're told that we're wrong or we're crazy or uh, it doesn't make any sense. There's a, there's a story that has become quite famous now. It's been made into a film called Witness of Another World, which was on Amazon Prime. If you haven't seen it, it might still be there and you can find it. You can definitely download it on the internet and watch it. It's a wonderful movie. And it's about the story of uh, Juan Perez, who was a shepherd in Argentina. And in 1978, he had a very, very dramatic encounter with extraterrestrials and a UFO in the field near his home. And it was incredibly, incredibly traumatizing for him to the point that he actually became a hermit. He was also ridiculed and treated horribly by his community. Um, so he, he was really living in terror and isolation for decades, which is really sad. And in the film, um, someone has heard about his story. They venture out to meet him. They help him to heal from it. And they also bring in Jacques Vallée, the very highly regarded UFO expert, to help with this, to help to validate this poor man's story. And so these people spend time with Juan in the film, in the documentary, and help him heal from his trauma and help him understand what it was that occurred. And because of that process... Juan finds out that there is actually a family lineage in his family of abduction. And this is something that Paul talks about, that there are lineages where families have many members over many generations who experience um, abduction, experience contact with extraterrestrials because they are hybrid beings and their family line has been hybridized, hybridized and they're being observed by and helped by um, the extraterrestrials who have essentially designed us. So Juan finds that out, that he is not alone in his own family with a, his abduction experience, and that is absolutely life-changing for him. So Paul is really emphasizing that it's very important for us to, to pay attention to each other's experiences and our own experiences, because we need that validation. We need to know that there's nothing wrong with us, that this is real, that there's nothing to feel shame about. There's nothing to be stigmatized for. This is something that has been happening around the world for thousands of years. So this poor man gets the opportunity of a lifetime to meet these people who help him. And uh, the, the movie is just really wonderful. So Paul references that. And then he kind of segues over to um, this idea relating to the shame and the stigma and everything that if, if we're going to tell a story that can be seen as being unusual, we have to tell it the right way, so-called. And so Paul is using church communities as an example of illustrating that. And he says that in church communities, there can be extra pressure 
to avoid stigma and shame and to tell stories a particular way because you have to be in line with the church narrative, the religious narrative, right? And that if you can't tell your story the right way or the church way, for example, it was God, it was miracles, it was whatever the explanation that fits within Christianity is, you have to use that. You can't say it's anything else. And if you can't do it that way, don't do it at all. So if you can't tell your story the way we, the church, want you to, don't bother telling it. And so that must make people feel very, very alone. And of course, Paul being somebody who has put himself out there in such a public way and so successfully as someone who is religious, who is a religious leader, who is a faith-based person, he definitely is a man of faith. Um, but yet he understands that these uh, other experiences are real and they are just as much part of what we're doing on earth. And they're just as much part of our faith, our knowledge, our understanding. So um, I really love that he is illustrating that, you know, the lack of judgment and the openness and the curiosity that and the adventure that is necessary to do this. And again, Paul is pushing through. Um, you know, some quite contrary opinions to his work in his own life, but he's still, he's still very much driven by a passion for communicating the, the knowledge that this is real. And he wants to help people to heal and to feel more connected to themselves and to the universe by sharing this knowledge. So then he kind of jumps forward a bit. He starts talking about how um, there's more evidence of, of extraterrestrial support of humans on earth in the form of this great leap forward he calls it that many people call it actually paleobiologists call it a great leap forward in human development human civilization thousands of years ago when all of a sudden we go from pretty primitive beings to suddenly being able to um design architecture uh, sorry to design agriculture and so where does this knowledge of agriculture and also craft such as pottery, weaving, where does that come from? Well, indigenous narratives have told us for hundreds of years that it was star people who came down and taught them these, these skills and helped them move forward. And that narrative is supported uh, in Paul's research and many people's research by many other narratives that are exactly the same, again, all around the world. And again, from thousands of years ago. So how is it that this narrative exists in such a widespread fashion at a time when none of these people would have been able to reach each other and communicate. There was no telephone, there was no email, there were no airplanes, there weren't even boats necessarily that were able to cross that amount of land, uh, of water. So, you know, it is definitely really fascinating how dominant these narratives are once you start exploring the information that's there. So Paul has uncovered so much for us that we can delve into even more deeply if we like to after reading his work. So he's talking about this great leap forward in human civilization with agriculture, um, city building. So I wasn't so wrong when I started saying um, architecture and that it's still largely unexplained, this great leap, right? Paleobiologists have never really been able to explain it. So the explanation is that we were assisted by star beings, that, that the Cherokee, for example, say that the Pleiadians came down and helped them. The Hopi say that Grandmother Spider came down and helped them. I mean, there's narratives like this all through North American indigenous um, history, but also indigenous history all around the world, and not just indigenous, also in some civilized, quote unquote, 
um, I don't like using that term, but you know what I mean. Uh, so some civilizations that had star being contact as well that were not considered indigenous civilizations. They were, you know, more modern civilizations. Um, that's how they saw themselves anyway. And so they had experience with with these star beings also coming down to help them to to teach them th things. So you know, uh, Paul is emphasizing that Aboriginal narratives have long been been held as myth, but really, if you look at the fact that um the church itself depicts the way that Paul basically puts it is that the church itself has has brought mythology forward. You know, you could say that the story of the Garden of Eden is a myth, but because the church created it, the message is it's not myth, it's fact. And anything else that's in the Bible is also fact. But anything that doesn't fit within that is a myth. So it wasn't created by the church, therefore it's not real. Right. That's what Paul is basically saying, and that we've missed out on a huge amount of knowledge and wisdom that has been available to us with this attitude. So we know that in Western culture, even if you are not a religious person, it's still based on Christianity. Right. So there's still a lot of Christian principles and Christian perspectives that are woven into how we operate on a daily basis in Western culture. And that's something we need to be looking a little bit more thoroughly at because we're not involving or we're not allowing other narratives and other sources of um, information to come into our worldview. So Paul is asking us to consider that carefully. And he goes back and touches again on the Elohim, the fact that it's a plural wor word, meaning the powerful ones. And that in other ancient texts, such as the Popol, I'm going to pronounce this so badly, the Popol Vah, I always want to, I always butcher that word, I'm sorry, it's P-O-P-O-L and V-U-H, the Popol Vah. And it's a story of human origins passed on by successors of the Mayans for hundreds of years. It originates in Guatemala. And that um, in that text, it doesn't say Elohim, meaning the powerful ones, but the very thorough translation of that text was done by someone who learned the ancient language that those people at the time spoke and was able to do a very accurate translation of the text. And he said that, the term that is used for the high beings was those who engineer, which is very interesting, right? Those who engineer. So they are designing, they are designing on earth, they are designing us. And then he talks about how that same idea exists in Genesis, of course, with the Elohim, the sky people and the Sumerians, the Filipino mythology that exists and has been carried on for thousands of years, narratives from southern Nigeria, from Benin, from uh, many, many, many countries, and that the origin story that is told in all of these different texts is the same. It talks about a dark, flooded planet, and that these beings arrive, the engineers, the, the powerful ones, and they start creating and then thing, the earth starts to appear, basically, and become what we know it to be now. So again, very, very common narratives around the world. How is that possible? Hmm, I wonder. So then he moves on a little further um, into talking about heroes that we have known in the past and in the present. People who have fought against the very heavy judgment, stigma, shame that comes at us with this topic, but but pushed against it anyway and said what they needed to say because they felt the importance 
of sharing this incredibly precious knowledge about who we really are. And one of those people was the Dominican friar Giordano Bruno. If you don't know of him, please read about him. Unbelievable person, unbelievable life, absolute one in a million brilliant uh, mind. And so he, of course, was found to be a heretic <laughs> as a result of, you know, his thinking. This was in the 1500s to the 1600s, um, the late 1500s to the early 1600s. He talked about the expanding universe. He talked about there being um, this many, many, many suns out in the universe and that each sun had planets around it. He talked about Jesus and Jesus's message that we are all of source, that we are not actually different from Jesus. We are similar. We are almost, in fact, I almost don't want to say this because it practically feels blasphemous. I, I respect Jesus very much. I'm not a religious person, but I believe that he is a powerful force in the world. But Giordano Bruno said that Jesus said that we are really like him. We are, we are the same as Jesus and that Jesus told us that. And that, you know, we shouldn't see him as being elevated above ourselves because that would separate us from what he was representing, which was a full embodiment of relationship with source. So that's really what Jesus was trying to share with us. That was very, you know, very not okay <laughs> to say at the time that Bruno was alive. He got in serious trouble for that. And that also he talked about human consciousness as well. He talked about not about us not being physical only, but also talking about how, you know, our consciousness was an entity in itself that was connected to source and was not limited to our physical body. So these were really big ideas at the time. And of course, this is happening in um in you know Europe at, at a time that religious religious influence is very very strong the 1500s and 1600s, so this brilliant visionary man was found a heretic and he was tortured and burned at the stake, um, absolutely brutal to think of. And I mean, we think that aliens are the threat. You know, I I don't really get that. I really don't understand why uh, we cannot we cannot see clearly that humans are the biggest risk to ourselves. It's not the star people. So Paul is kind of illustrating that and uh, doesn't touch on it very much, but he kind of hints at it through the book. And then he leaps forward to the present day and talks about one of my personal heroes, Edgar Mitchell, absolutely remarkable man. He was an astronaut. He went to the moon. He saw ETs. His life was changed by the view of Earth that he had when he was up there in the galaxy, looking down, up in space, looking down at us. It absolutely changed his life. He had a huge spiritual experience and came down back to earth, a changed person and spent the rest of his life talking about that, even though there were limits to what he was allowed to say, because he was bound by uh, ethics, but also parameters of, you know, just freedom of information, that kind of thing that, that he was restricted by. He was not allowed to talk in great depth about what he had seen or what he knew, um, but he did share as much as he could. And he was somebody who was very passionate about speaking up against threats that were made towards people who were experiencers, who had had contact experiences and had spoken out about them. A lot of these people were threatened by the US government, for example, and he was very, very, very passionate about speaking out against that. And so um, he, he was just such an incredible, admirable, admirable man, just very, you know, very fearless, really had a great deal of integrity. And so Paul sees him as someone who is available to us now as an example of strength, of fearlessness and 
of uh, truth, you know, the truth of, of what's really going on around us, that there are many, many people existing in our present time who know this and that they should be allowed to share that information with us. He also touches on a sad story, the deaths of 25 scientists who worked on Reagan, the Reagan administration Star Wars program in the 1980s. 25 of those scientists ended up dying. It was never investigated, never seemed to be found to be odd, obviously is. So we know that there's a dark side to this pursuit of knowledge. Paul does touch on that, that there have been dangers to people who have been trying to find out more. And why, you know, why can't this information be shared with us? Why do people have to lose their lives or live in terror because of it? It makes no sense. And Paul clearly believes that and is trying to, and is an example himself as someone who is going public with this information. So, yeah. So anyway, so Mitchell, um, Edward Mitchell, Edgar Mitchell, sorry, the astronaut, he talked about how the classification of ET contact has prevented humanity from taking its place among com communities of spacefaring civilizations, and also that it's deprived us humans of helpful technology that could make our lives easier, healthier, happier. So again, it makes no sense, you know, and uh, uh, Mitchell was limited in what he was able to say, but then finally in 2020, after Mitchell's death, the uh, the Pentagon in the U.S. government has started to, you know, they started to reveal that UFOs are real. They have been investigating them all this time. Surprise, surprise. So Paul really wants to spread the word about what is really going on, about the fact that this is not something that is a, a trend. This is not something that is a myth. This is not something that is just a story. This topic, this topic of extraterrestrials coming down to Earth to be with us and to help us and to participate in our growth and development as members of a galactic community, that is something that it is time for us to know. This information has been around for thousands and thousands of years all around the Earth in so many different cultures, societies, and narratives. Paul is bringing all of that together and he, as a result, actually, the demand for him as a pastor and as a counselor and as a general contact person for this topic has absolutely shot up. So that's a very good sign. That means that now people really are taking this more seriously, including people in religious um, communities or religious leaders themselves are taking this more seriously, more willing to talk about it, more willing to investigate it. And there's more information out there for us to learn from and to validate as being real. So Paul is doing very, very amazing work, guys. This, these books, he also has a channel called The Fifth Kind TV, which you should check out. He does beautiful videos on that channel that um, has also become immensely popular um, that are just so helpful, informative, reassuring, inspiring, mind expanding. I really urge you to check it out. And so in ending the book, Paul goes back again to that sixth century and the all those edits that were done to take out the information that we have needed to know all this time. And Paul suggests that every successive culture ever since the sixth century has borrowed from the others before it. So for example, Judaism borrowed from the Sumerians, but didn't really credit the Sumerians for what they, they took from them. And that um so of course you know it's natural that we all build on what has come before 
But in that process of building, we've actually become, we've actually made our worldview and our cosmic view smaller. We've made it monotheistic. We've made it very earthbound. We are missing out. So Paul draws parallels between imperialism and the development of religion. And I think that that is absolutely fascinating. It explains a great deal, especially as to why indigenous narratives have just been brushed aside as mythology, whereas the Bible stories have been found to be fact uh, or, you know, have been called fact by church fathers, church leaders. And of course, the ever present um, influence of Christianity on our culture means that that message has been woven into our mindset just over time. And he references the parallels between what Plato said, what Jesus said, what, what uh, Giordano Bruno said, and that researchers and scientists now are saying the same things. So this ancient knowledge that was talked about by Plato, by Jesus, by many, many other leaders that have been influential for our development as human beings, um, that that information, that knowledge that was communicated so long ago is coming right back around now and is being validated in science, in research, in physics. So get curious, everybody, look these topics up. And he references that in the book of uh, Job, um, there's talk about the Pleiades, Sirius, and Orion, and how those three star systems influence life on Earth. Why would that be in the book of Job? If there's nothing out there, it's not important, you know, why would that be there? That's kind of interesting. And he references, you know, that China and the Lakota people in the U.S. also have parallels, ancient Chinese people and ancient Chinese beliefs um, from the 1300s and the Lakotan beliefs in the 1300s were, were parallel. Now, how would the Chinese and the Lakota haven't have had any contact with each other? Hmm. But they found that um, this was during the Ming Dynasty, by the way. That, um, the, that the Pleiades was very much a part of the death process. That's basically what the Chinese and the Lakota were saying, that the Pleiades is the place that we come from and is, again, the place we return to once the body dies. So this idea of consciousness living on, of continuing on, um, has been around for such a long time, thousands of years. It's just incredible. I keep saying thousands of years, but I just really can't get over it. The amount of time that this information has been around for and how thoroughly the cover-up process must have been done, you know, how, how strategically it has been done to cover this up, because that takes a huge amount of effort and kind of planning to hide that information, right? To, to take it out of text, to hide text, to hide narratives, to hide facts and artifacts and things like that, that would be helpful for us to know, to validate that these things happened. Um, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense that we don't have that information at hand. So Paul is referencing so many connections within faith, within religion, within culture, within society, within traditional narratives, within mythology that are, you know, you would never think that all of these things would tie together, especially in this way, but they certainly, certainly do. So he kind of ends again with uh, touching on the story of the Garden of Eden. And I really love that because I have never been a religious person. I was not really raised in a religious family. My parents are Irish Catholic and raised in the Irish Catholic Church, but left it when they were in their 20s because they found 
that they were unsatisfied with the answers that they were getting um, when they asked questions. It was usually just because God said so. That was the answer. So I have not grown up in a religious culture, in a religious background or setting. But part of the reason for that is because when I was a child, I was curious about religion. My parents let me explore it. And they let me go to church. They let me look at the Bible. They let me ask questions. And it never made sense to me, even when I was little, it never made sense to me that Adam and Eve were punished for wanting to know more. That never made sense. I thought, if God is all loving and all supportive and really wants to be there for us as his children, why would he punish us for wanting to know more about him, for wanting to have a stronger relationship with him as a result of that knowledge? It just makes no sense that he would do that, especially such harsh punishment, right? The snake shows up, Adam and Eve, um, take, or Eve takes a bite of the apple, Adam takes a bite of the apple, then they're kicked out, they're excommunicated from the Garden of Eden. How, how dare they be curious? How dare they want to know more? So this, Paul references this as an example of how um, the Elohim, the powerful ones, may not always have had our best interests at heart, and that they may have intended, some of them anyway, for us to be servants to them, for us to be uh, slaves and, and, you know, at their beck and call for some purpose or other, uh, largely to make them powerful and give them whatever it was that they needed but not allowing us to evolve, that we would be kind of under their thumb. So I feel like that story of the of the, uh, the Garden of Eden, that the snake was evil for trying to give us knowledge, and then we were cast out, it really just doesn't make a lot of sense. And also the snake is a very positive um, uh, image or metaphor or creature, you know, depending on what you want to call it. It's a very positive representation of many different themes, healing, medicine, knowledge, wisdom, um, mostly healing. And so why is it so positive in, in so many cultures around the world for so long, but in the Bible, it's not? There's just a lot of metaphor there to explore. But, you know, definitely the point is you can't know too much. We can know everything you can't. And that never really made sense to me. It definitely does not make sense to Paul. So the message feels like it's follow the rules or else, you know, you don't get to be in the special place. And so that doesn't seem right. And uh, definitely not to Paul. He says that the bedrock of religion is worshiping those that are greater than you. And that involves having fear and shame and a certain level of secrecy. And this is not Jesus-like. It's not Jesus-like to have to worship other humans who have decided that they are more powerful than us, whether they be church leaders or whether they be political leaders. Not that anybody shouldn't have power. Some people definitely should, and they do very well with it. They treat people respectfully and kindly and so on. But the fact is that we're living in a time when power has become extremely problematic. And Paul is somewhat addressing that and also questioning why we need to be feeling shame and fear and stigma. And, you know, why do we have to be kicked out of the special place? Why can't we know everything? Why can't we? So he really does investigate that. And he shows how, um, you know, it's really time for us to start asking questions, deep questions, and look at the information that is everywhere around us available to us to see ourselves, our origins, and our life on earth 
in a different way, in a bigger way, in an expansive way, in an incredible way. And that, you know, this knowledge really is available to us now. We can access it. And so we need to be looking for it and using it as we move through life to live consciously, live wholly as our true cosmic selves and allow ourselves to understand that our origins are not what we have taught, have been taught that they are. Our purpose on life, a purpose in life and on earth is not what we have been taught that it is. And that we need to think a little deeper, feel a little more deeply, connect a little more deeply to the world around us with this knowledge. This knowledge can help us do that. So I really, really, really encourage you to read this book. It is just something else. Um, the whole series of books that Paul has written are amazing. And again, check out his work on the Fifth Kind TV. This is just a, you know, a, a sort of rundown for you of this book. I'm trying to give you juicy tidbits and give you a sort of overview of what he's talking about. But it is such incredibly important information. There are details in here I could not give you. Um, it would just take too long. So buy this book, buy his other books, watch Fifth Kind TV, reach out to Paul if you have questions. He's amazing at responding to people. And uh, I really hope that you enjoy it. So I'm going to sign off. Thank you, everyone, for listening and for giving me your time and your attention. I hope that you enjoyed this book talk. And by all means, let us know what you thought. Like, subscribe, share with your friends. And we really hope to see you in our community ongoing. We are growing. We are going to continue to share with you wonderful information about what's really going on in ourselves, on our planet, and in the universe. Lots of love. Bye.